The title of the message this morning is 1776 or 1789. Now I'm going to be doing a lot of reading because I'm going to be quoting a lot of sources. I don't want to bore you. I pray that we listen. I guarantee you, I personally have gotten a lot from just working on this message this morning. But I pray that God help us understand a little bit more the time that we live in and the opportunity that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. Lord, we are so thankful for this nation. But above all else, we are thankful again for you, for your salvation, for the fact that you rule over all. Help us to understand that. Lord, again, speak to us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Could you take your Bibles, please, and turn, first of all, to the 33rd Psalm. Psalm 33. And we're going to begin in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because, listen, we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. His trust. Now it's obvious what we're celebrating this weekend. The birth of our nation, July 4th. In the Declaration of Independence, it begins with these words. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands 
which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent and respect, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I've seen this document in Washington, D.C. It's stunning to see it and to recognize this is what they signed. It ends with this. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we, usually, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It's been a sad time. There are people that have all kinds of thoughts when it comes to what's happening in our nation. Sadly, a Fox News survey just reported this, that less than 40% of registered voters said they're proud of the country, with majorities of Republicans and independents feeling dissatisfied, the survey published Thursday said. That's a 12-point drop from 2017 and a 30-point drop since 2011. I can understand a little bit why people would say, I'm not, I'm not proud of this situation now. My response is this, I love my country. I don't trust my government. There was just a Marine from World War II, just celebrated this last week, his 100th birthday. He was in the same outfit my dad was in, Guadalcanal, 1st Marine Division. He was crying because he said the nation that, he died, that, that they fought for doesn't exist anymore. It's not there. It's not to be found. You know what needs to happen is an appeal to heaven. And the people that do that are the people whose destiny is heaven. God's people, people who have trusted Christ as Savior. There are some that don't like that. This last Thursday, 
a Washington Post columnist by the name of Kate Cohen proposed that America needs to embrace atheism if it is to stop the, quote, growing power of the Christian right, unquote. She opened her piece with this. With its ruling last week to retract federal abortion rights, the Supreme Court essentially declared it won't protect Americans from a powerful minority who insist their God gets to make the rules for everyone. My God does make the rules for everyone. And he begins them with, thus saith the Lord. This week, it declared it will not protect students from the coercion inherent in official-led prayers to that same God. Earlier this week, the Washington Post was gloating over the report that more and more Americans do not believe in God. 81% of Americans said they believe in God. Five years ago, it was 87%. What's happening? There is a battle. It's a battle between 1776 and 1789. Please follow me on this. Listen. If you have questions, we can talk later. But please listen to this. Two revolutions took place at this time. We think of the one in 1776, but there was another one in 1789. It's worth noting the differences. First of all, like I said, a little history. In 1820, a U.S. revenue cutter captured the slave ship Antelope off the coast of Florida with nearly 300 African slaves. A young man by the name of Francis Scott Key was the defense attorney, the counsel, for the Africans. Many of them were just young teenagers. Key fought to free the slaves in a legal battle that lasted seven years. Arguing their case before the Supreme Court in 1825, it was said of Francis Scott Key, quote, he greatly surpassed the expectations of the most admiring friends. Key closed with an electrifying picture of the horrors connected with the African slave trade, unquote. Jonathan Bryan wrote in the book, Dark Places of the Earth, The Voyage of the Slave Ship Antelope, which was written just in 2015, quote, most startling of all, Key argued that all men are created equal. If the United States had captured a ship full of white captives, Key asked, would not our courts assume them to be free? How could it be any different simply because the captives were black? Bryant continued in this vein, quote, Key had unleashed all of his rhetorical weapons. This was a case he believed in and had worked personally 
to bring before the Supreme Court. The Antelope was a Spanish slave ship that had been captured by privateers and then seized by a United States Revenue Marine cutter off the coast of Florida. Using clear precedent and appealing to morality, Francis Scott Key argued that the hundreds of African captives found aboard the Antelope should be returned to Africa and freedom. United States law demanded it. The law of nations demanded it. Even the law of nature demanded it. Key looked into the eyes of the six justices sitting for the case, four of which were known slave owners and announced that by the law of nature, all men are free. The Supreme Court decided that slaves were property. Only a portion of the slaves were returned to Africa where they founded the colony of New Georgia in Liberia. Francis Scott Key had personally raised in this time $11,000 to help those Africans. In 1841, two years before his death, Francis Scott Key helped John Quincy Adams free 53 slaves in the Amistad case. Adams argued before the Supreme Court, quote, The moment you come to the Declaration of Independence, that every man has a right to life and liberty, an inalienable right, this case is decided. I ask nothing more in behalf of these unfortunate men than this declaration, unquote. Years before, during the War of 1812, Francis Scott Key, while being held by the British, albeit on his own ship, witnessed the shelling of Fort McHenry in Baltimore. Early in the morning of September 14, 1814, he saw that the flag of his country still flew over the fort. He later sat down and penned the song that we just read and sang, excuse me, the Star-Spangled Banner. There is a fourth verse to it, although we sang it as it was the second verse. Oh, thus be it ever, when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just, and this is our motto. In God is our trust. And all God's people said, Amen. Years later, a Reverend Mr. M.R. Watkinson wrote to the Treasury Department, November 3rd, excuse me, 13th, 1861, and suggested, you know, Something about Almighty God in some form of our coins. Something ought to be there. There was another proposal. There was 
to amend the preamble of the USS, of the US Constitution to include the mention of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, on March 3rd, 1865, Congress voted to approve the motto, in God we trust, for all U.S. coins. House Speaker Shiler Colfax noted, quote, the last act of Congress, the last act of Congress ever signed by President Lincoln was one requiring that the motto, in God we trust, should hereafter be inscribed upon all our national coin. Eventually, in God we trust, was inscribed in the U.S. House chamber above the Speaker's rostrum, above the Senate's main southern door, on a tribute block inside the Washington Monument, on a stained glass window in the U.S. Capitol's chapel, and in the Capitol Visitor Center. One day before my first birthday, President Eisenhower said this, In God we trust. Often have we heard the words of this wonderful American motto. Let us make sure that familiarity has not made them meaningless for us. We carry the torch of freedom. Now listen to that. We carry the torch of freedom as a sacred trust for all mankind. We do not believe that God intended the light that he created to be put out by men. Atheism substitutes men for the supreme creator, and this leads inevitably to domination and dictatorship. But we believe, and it is because we believe that God intends all men to be free and equal, that we demand free government. Eisenhower went on. Our government is servant, not master. Our chosen representatives are our equals, not our czars, not our commissars. We must jealously guard our foundation in faith, for on it rests the ability of the American individual to live and thrive in this blessed land and to be able to help other less fortunate people to achieve freedom and individual opportunity. These we take for granted, but to others they are often only a wishful dream. World War II veteran, Congressman Charles Bennett of Florida, with other senators and representatives, helped pass H.R. 619 signed by President Eisenhower on July 11th, 1955, to include, in God we trust on all U.S. currency. Bennett stated on the House floor, quote, nothing can be more certain than that our country was founded in a spiritual atmosphere and with a firm trust in God. While the sentiment 
of trust in God is universal and timeless, these particular four words, in God we trust, are indigenous to our country. In these days when imperialistic and materialistic communism seeks to attack and destroy freedom, we should continually look for ways to strengthen the foundations of our freedom. In 1956, in God we trust was legally adopted by Congress and the President as the official United States national motto. John F. Kennedy stated February 9, 1961, quote, the guiding principle of this nation has been, is now, and ever shall be. In God we trust. President Reagan stated in his National Day of Prayer proclamation, March 19, 1981, quote, Our national motto, in God we trust, was not chosen lightly. It reflects a basic recognition that there is a divine authority in the universe to which this nation owes homage. In God we trust. Now, we would love for that to be much more of a reality again. The weight of those words carries more than we can ever imagine. There may be those that discount them, that they really care little about the message. But we remember this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 40 verse 4. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. We desperately need a history lesson. Now we're going to go to part two of that lesson that we're getting this morning. There's an author by the name of Os Guinness. In an interview in 2017, he said this, the culture war now at its deepest roots is actually a clash between 1776, the American Revolution, and 1789, the French Revolution. I never realized, honestly, I never realized the impact until I began studying this last week. I never realized the impact that the French Revolution had in opening the doors for people like Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, and so on and so on, and all the communist revolutions that have come since then. Now would you please follow me? There is, or was, excuse me, an 18th century 
influential orator in the British House of Commons. His name was Edmund Burke. Burke stands out when it comes to his time and his place because he was against slavery and for the American colonies. He defended us. When America's Revolutionary War began, Burke in Parliament on March 22nd, 1775 said this, quote, the people, speaking of Americans, the people are Protestants. By the way, at that time, about 98% of the people in the United States. And of that kind, which is the most adverse to all implicit submission of mind and opinion. This is, the, this is a persuasion not only favorable to liberty, but built on it. Receiving news of the beginning of the French Revolution, Burke wrote this, October 10th, 1789, quote, The day I heard the portentous state of France where the elements which compose human society seem all but dissolved, seem all to be dissolved, and a world of monsters to be produced in the place of it. As the French Revolution descended into riots, Burke publicly condemned the chaos in his address to Parliament, February 9th, 1790. Quote, The French had shown themselves the ablest architects of ruin that had hitherto existed in the world. In that very short space of time, they had completely pulled down to the ground their monarchy, their church, their nobility, their law, their revenue, their army, their navy, their commerce, their arts, and their manufactures. There was a danger of an imitation of the excesses of an irrational, unprincipled, prescribing, confiscating, plundering, ferocious, bloody, and tyrannical democracy. In religion, the danger of their example is no longer from intolerance, but from atheism, a foul, unnatural vice, foe to all the dignity and consolation of mankind. We said here in America, in God we trust. In France, it began with this, liberty, equality, fraternity. But underneath, it was socialism, godless socialism. A man by the name of Robespierre led what they called the Committee of Public Safety. Now somebody said that was France's version of disinformation, of a disinformation governance board. When citizens resisted the new secular government, the new secular order, I should say, he implemented violent government-sponsored subversive terror, tactic, terror tactics on French citizens. He gave a speech to the National Convention, February 5th, 1794, titled, 
terror justified. Quote, lead the people by means of reason and by terror. The basis of popular government during a revolution is terror. Terror is nothing else than swift, severe, indomitable justice. The government planned and carried out terrorist attacks upon its own people in order to get them to submit. Folks, this last week, it came out in the New York Post that the Centers for Disease Control was using cell phone information to see who was going to church. That's a fact. Terror? Not yet. Robespierre's reign of terror resulted in over 40,000 French citizens being beheaded in Paris. Over 300,000 massacred in a place known as, I believe it's called the Vendée, a rural religious Catholic area, northwest France. French General Francois Joseph Westerman reputedly wrote a report to the Committee of Public Safety. Following your orders that you gave me, I crushed the children beneath the horses' hooves, massacred the women who those at least will bear no more lawbreakers. I do not have a single prisoner to reproach myself with. I have exterminated them all. That was done in a Western country. During the cancel culture, let's call it that, of the French Revolution, the following took place. Churches were closed and used for immoral, lurid, licentious, scandalous depravities. The Cathedral of Our Lady of Strasbourg was made into a temple of reason. They actually took a prostitute, dressed her in nothing more than a white sheet, put her on the altar, and called her the goddess of reason. Crosses were forbidden as being offensive. Christian religious monuments and statues were destroyed. Public and private worship and Christian religious education were outlawed. The French Revolution intentionally campaigned to de-Christianize French society, replacing it with a secular civic religion of state worship. Ah, it would never happen here. We got a lady in the Washington Post that's begging for it, and she's not the only one. Not wanting a constitution that has done in the year of our Lord, as America's was, France made 1792 year one. Considering 10, the number of man, as man had 10 fingers and 10 toes, they created a system where every measurement was divisible by 10, and they called it the metric system. Executions and beheadings began. 
The first was King Louis the Sixteenth, Louis the Sixteenth, who sent his navy before his navy to help America gain its independence. Next was Queen Marie Antoinette. When the country's situation did not improve, Robespierre accused the royalty, resulting in all of them being beheaded. When the situation still did improve, the wealthy were beheaded, followed by business owners, farmers, and those who hoarded food. When the situation still did not improve, the religious culture were beheaded. Their speaking out against the immoral behavior was somehow considered as holding back the nation from achieving a secular utopia. Religious orders, nuns, lay sisters were sent to the guillotine for refusing to deny their faith and obey the civil constitution of the clergy. Jean-Jacques Rousseau considered the intellectual father of the French Revolution wrote in The Social Contract, 1762, that if the state says to a citizen, quote, it is expedient for the state that you should die, he ought to die. That never happened here. Think abortion. Because his life is no longer a mere bounty of nature, but a gift made conditionally by the state, unquote. The seeds of this godless behavior in France were planted by Voltaire and Rousseau, and it was now coming to full fruition. Have the seeds been planted in America? Yes. Lawless street mobs cast off all moral restraint in unprecedented debauchery and violence to overthrow a corrupt old order only to set up a new one that was worse. The French Revolution became the model for every socialist and communist revolution, which inevitably caused mass deaths and end in totalitarian dictatorships. The man Edmund Burke I mentioned earlier, regarding the bloody revolution, he wrote a letter to the member of the National Assembly, 1791, quote, what is liberty without wisdom and without virtue? It is the greatest of all possible evils, for it is folly, vice, and madness without restraint. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains on their own appetites. In proportion as they are disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and good in preference to the flattery of knaves. Society, he goes on to say, cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men 
of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Remember William Penn? If we will not be governed by God, we must be governed by tyrants. Noah Webster wrote this on September 21st, 1796. The reason why severe laws are necessary in France is that the people have not been educated Republicans. In other words, people that speak, speaking of self-restraint, they do not know how to govern themselves and so must be governed by severe laws and penalties and a most rigid administration. In 1799, Alexander Hamilton condemned the French Revolution's attack on Christianity as, quote, depriving mankind of its best consolations and most animating hopes and to make a gloomy desert of the universe. Hamilton went on to say this, the praise of a civilized world is justly due to Christianity. War, by the influence of the humane principles of that religion, has been stripped of half its horrors. The French renounce Christianity and they relapse into barbarism. War resumes the same hideous and savage form which it wore in the ages of Gothic and Roman violence. Unquote. There's one more quote that I wanted to bring from Edmund Burke. January 9th, 1795. In a letter to a Mr. William Smith, Burke wrote this. May we heed this. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So, conclusion. 1776 or 1789? Which do we want? You see, there's a challenge. One of these is gaining traction greatly, and it's not 1776. You know, how do you bring 1789 to America. What do you do? Well, first of all, it's being done right now. There's godlessness, there's terror, there's lies, and there's the destruction of truth covered up by fact checkers on Facebook. So how do you do all that? Folks, we take it right back to Genesis 3. Yea, hath God said. I want to bring out one particular thing, and we're almost done. But I want to bring out one particular thing. You know, there, there are, when it comes to the spiritual warfare, there are battles that are going on. Some people don't understand. It's like, well, there's a guy on, you know, he's in the pulpit. He's got a Bible. Surely it must be good. No, it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily good. It isn't necessarily good. In one place known as the emergent church, it's getting popular to doubt God. 
Rob Bell says that God gives men, quote, the invitation to follow Jesus with all our doubts and questions right there with us, unquote. He said, we went on to sponsor a doubt night at our church a while back. People were encouraged to write down whatever questions or doubts they had about God and Jesus and the Bible and faith and the church. He said, questions bring freedom. Questions, no matter how shocking or blasphemous or arrogant or ignorant or raw, are rooted in humility. That's a lie. Tim Condor, the pastor of Emmaus Way, said there must be a, quote, climate of theological openness to allow people to express their doubts. Now, hold your thought. Hold your thought. Adam Cleveland says that churches should be, quote, open to critique and deconstruction, unquote. He says there should be safe places where people can come and be involved in the process of deconstructing ideas and practices all while remaining open to the new movements and new waves of the Spirit. Unquote. Brian McLaren said this, we should welcome the disillusioned and the doubters. And we do. But we don't open our arms to keep the disillusioned and doubts. What does the Bible say? 2 Timothy 2.23 But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Titus 3.9 But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Folks, this is why we say the Bible interprets itself. Thy word is truth. We are growing in Christ. Now, I'm going to bring all this together, what we've talked about. Give me two more minutes, please. At the most, ten. Remember Ephesians 2.10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, in spite of incomplete knowledge, we can say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Luke wrote to Theophilus in Acts 1.3, to whom also he showed himself, speaking of Christ, alive after his passion by many infallible truths, proofs, excuse me, being seen of them 40 days. Because of that, folks, because of that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice in this. In God, we trust. We don't cast about the doubts. That's what's destroying us from within. From without, here come these things that we allow in, we've embraced. I'm going back to the old book. In God, we trust. 
2 Timothy 3.1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, but in God we trust. 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, but in God we trust. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, but in God we trust. 2 Peter 3.3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, but in God we trust. We need to heed what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been, listen, assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. You do that, and you come to, in God we trust. I found it fascinating. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua 21. I just read this in my devotions this morning. Just finished up the book of Joshua. I have this marked in my Bible. I'm going to read it here. In Joshua 21, verse 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. The Lord gave them rest round about according to to all that he sware unto their fathers, and there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hands. Look at verse 45. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. In other words, they could trust their God. Now, like we've said before, Israel going into the promised land is a picture of us going into all that the Christian walk promises us. What God has given us in Christ. All will come to pass. It doesn't matter. It breaks our hearts. We have the gospel. It doesn't matter who threatens We can say, when it comes to the promises of God, all will come to pass, and in God we trust. What this nation needs is God's people once again declaring, it's in God we trust. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's why 
when it comes to the Declaration of Independence, we need to remind ourselves that that declaration was preached from the pulpits of America before it went down on paper and was presented to the King of England. Why? In God, we trust. Not you, King. Not you. No king but Jesus. No king but Jesus. By the way, no king but Jesus. No government but Jesus. Now what I mean by that is this. When you have a government that is calling good evil and evil good, that government is illegitimate. Our God reigns. In God we trust. We're not here to overthrow a government. We're here to look at those people in the eye and to tell them, thus saith the Lord. In God we trust. Let's pray for America. I love this country. But its leaders, so many of them, are corrupt. But God died for them too. Jesus Christ died for them. So, we have a ministry.